0: Good morning and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Um, Really excited about this special edition we're having this morning. Um, We're really privileged to be joined by a really distinguished group of guests, uh, Michael Kumoff from the Bank of England uh, and also previously with the International Monetary Fund, Uh, Tommaso uh, Mancini-Graffoli, a leading uh, researcher and publisher and thought leader at the IMF, and David Zhou, who is one of the more preeminent economists in the fintech world in China and uh, has published extensively and very thoughtfully about China's new full reserve digital currency, DCEP. So today, um, we're really trying to continue some of these global macro themes. And I think there there are a lot of ideas that we're trying to synthesize here. There are ideas about um, what's happening in the current global economic crisis. What uh, What is this doing to the role of major reserve currencies? What impact could this have on the banking sector? What can we learn from prior crises, the Great Depression, and alternative models for how the financial system might be constructed, and then synthesizing that with the here and the now of breakthroughs in technology, digital currency, stable coins, uh, and imagining if we can see the reconstruction, the construction of a new international monetary system, and what that might look like. So kicking this off with our first guest, uh, I'd like to... uh, Welcome, Michael Kumoff, who is Senior Research Advisor in the Research Hub at the Bank of England. Uh, Welcome, Michael.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: I appreciate you joining very much. Um, You know, I I think it'd be great just to start. I mean, you've done done some very interesting work in this whole topic of full reserve banking, uh, the Chicago plan, uh, which we've touched on before on this program. Um, and also on digital currency um, and potential models for central bank digital currency, which I, I find all interesting and perhaps not uh, coincidental, but I thought it'd be helpful um, just, just to kick things off to have you kind of take us back to the 1930s for a moment, um, take us back to you know Irving Fisher's uh, four principles of 100% money, this idea that we could see fewer and shorter recessions, uh, less public debt, less private debt, uh, no bank runs, uh, a, a much different inflation situation, and you later argued, um, higher output. So maybe, maybe just start, take us back to that set of ideas and, and we can and kind of help the audience understand
1: that. Okay, very briefly, uh, I will tell you about how I got back to that set of ideas myself. Uh, they started when I was working at the IMF. Uh, and around 2006, I was getting very concerned about what I was reading about, what was happening in the US financial sector. Uh, I had previously worked with Barclays for five years, and at that point I started reading a lot about uh, uh, monetary systems and the history of monetary systems, and what I came across uh, as a key reference is a very short booklet by uh, uh, Irving Fisher, 100% Money and the Public Debt, uh, which I then... uh, uh, proceeded to, to model because that is my full-time job, is basically to devise my macroeconomic models that help us to think through uh, 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 macroeconomic mechanisms. And so basically the key notion in, in that work by Fisher and his contemporaries was that the Great Depression, one of the key problems was a, a shortage of a medium of exchange, he called it the circulating medium, um, the fact that banks create that medium of exchange by making loans, and that is how the majority of uh, the medium of exchange is created, especially today, but even at that time. Uh, And the idea that this could create financial instability first in an upturn because banks uh, can make uh, uh, new loans by creating new deposits without having to worry about attracting new deposits from somebody else first. That can lead to lending booms or can make lending booms easier uh, to, to, to kick off by the banking system. And then in a downturn, uh, bank loans start to default. Banks start to lend less because they're worried, more worried about the risk. Uh, both of that destroys bank deposits and the destruction of bank deposits is a destruction of the medium of exchange precisely at the time when they are needed uh, the most. That was one of the ideas of Fisher, but the other idea was um, uh, that in order to create the money that we use, and this is more true than ever, uh, we need debt because the banks can only create money by uh, somebody going into more debt, uh, getting a loan uh, so that the proceeds of the loan can be credited to his or her uh, deposit account, meaning that if you, we, we, we want to create enough liquidity, the, the, it has a flip side and that flip side is uh, uh, increasing debt. So the Chicago plan idea that uh, Fisher laid out so uh, well in that short booklet uh, consists of the, the separation of the monetary and credit functions uh, of the banking system in that system. Uh, The central bank would be the sole creator of money and the banks would only be the intermediaries of money. They could no longer create uh, deposits by making loans, but instead would have to attract sufficient deposits of money first before lending them out. And that uh, plan... I should emphasize was an idea of who were, in essence, the founders of the Chicago School of Economics. Yes. Um, they were uh, very laissez-faire for industry, but at least in those days, they found that a prerequisite for efficient laissez-faire in industry was that when it comes to money creation, there should not be that kind of laissez-faire. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, Th- this should be handled by uh, a central bank, by the authorities. Right. And I was able then to basically confirm Fisher's conclusions, the ones that you already outlined, uh, a, a better ability to handle financial cycles, financial crisis, um, uh, less debt because when you uh, issue money under the Chicago plan via the central bank, you issue it basically as a token Uh, that signifies this is something you can purchase something with, but there's no corresponding debt. Um, So lower debt and the output gains uh, that I came up with had something to do uh, with the fact that um, this would be an economy where everybody would be less leveraged, far less leveraged than today, including governments. And lower leverage typically implies a lower real interest rate and a lower real interest rate implies Uh, uh, more capital accumulation and more uh, economic growth.
0: Right. So I I think that's a fantastic summary. Thank you. I think um, it's really noteworthy, you know, these ideas for a safer, if you will, uh, and and ultimately more effective financial system emerge following crises. Uh, You know, this is obviously emerged in the mid 1930s. you know you're revisiting these ideas, uh, you know, shortly after the financial crisis, and I think an ongoing European financial crisis at the time, and you know I think once again we're we're now needing to look at these questions again. Um, we're we're facing uh, obviously an unprecedented amount of monetization of debt uh, globally, but but also um, we're still in the early days of this economic crisis, and uh, I, I think. Um, you know, part of the, the, the underlying risk that people may be concerned about is this deeper set of solvency risks at the household level, uh, at the level of the firm, uh, at the level of commercial lending institutions, uh, and and ultimately even sovereigns. And we can look at each individual country in isolation, but these we have this very interconnected uh, global financial system. I saw the European banking authorities actually yesterday, you know, published their view that you know, they think most people, most banks will be okay right now with their stress tests. Maybe there's going to be some that uh, don't have quite as uh, strong loan books. Um, but that's, you know, still it feels like built on rosy assumptions about whether there's cascading waves of, of, of economic uh, downturn here. But not so much looking for you to predict the future, but I, I think the, the interesting question is, um, you know, it, it feels like these ideas are more uh, relevant and germane again today.
1: Uh, yes I, I would agree with you um i again if you look back at fisher he was always saying the great depression is a, uh, uh, the main phenomenon was that people were perfectly able to do work to do real physical work and be productive but they weren't able to pay each other because they were, weren't able to get their hands on hands on uh, the medium of exchange, the circulating medium. So now today we're in a situation where, first of all, there is a risk, that, nobody would deny that, that um, uh, more bank loans will go bad. Uh, and that immediately destroys, when it's written off, it destroys part of the medium of exchange. There is uh, the risk that banks will lend less because they're nervous. Obviously, central banks are trying to steer against that, but there, there is that underlying risk. That also destroys the medium of exchange. There's also a third one that I am exploring in a recent paper with uh, Xuan Wang from the University of Oxford. Is that banks' net interest margins are very compressed. Uh, because of the low interest environment that we already have. And that right. is further uh, uh, reducing banks' incentives to lend uh, because they, they, they can't make that much money on lending. Why
0: lend when it's not very profitable?
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so the question, the question then is, uh, how do we deal with this situation? And when you realize that the main function of bank lending is to create liquidity by means of which people can pay each other, and if you realize that banks have all these headwinds, then you can ask the question, is there any other way in which we can create this liquidity? And that's where uh, the whole issue of uh, uh, public money comes into, yeah. potentially comes into the equation.
0: Yeah. And so I, I think it's a good touch point on you know, part of the other theme that we're going to talk about here uh, in, in the show today, which is, these ideas of stable coins, uh, central bank money, digital currencies. Um, and and I know you've touched on some of that in your research at the Bank of England. Um, and, and we have some other guests who are going to speak to that more as well. But I think this idea of a full reserve uh, digital money uh, that has you know, the utility value of the internet, which we all now know and, and understand. Um, but this idea that uh, this digital currency must be full reserve, and it must be, you know, backed by or the underlying issuance based on something like government securities. Um, you know, we have U.S. dollar coin, which is sort of fundamentally, you know, based on short-term U.S. government securities. I think in the in the paper you wrote for the Bank of England, you spoke about a model where you know a, a central bank digital currency would exclusively be based on. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, uh, sovereign, uh, you know, securities issuance?
1: Uh, not sovereign securities. is literally central bank reserves, right? uh, which, which, is, which is different because uh, the, the, that world is one way. Essentially, the central bank issues the money that we use, Uh, Potentially via uh, an intermediary, you know, the Bank of England issued a discussion paper in March where it lays all that out very nicely, uh, where the central bank could be the issuer, but uh, the private sector could uh, provide the uh, customer-facing account, but the account would ultimately represent a liability of the central bank uh, or, you know, an item on the liability side of the central bank. Right,
0: right. Right, uh, I think part of the part of the notion was that a a, a commercial bank that wanted to possess or an intermediary that wanted to to purchase, in a sense, uh, central bank uh, you know d- digital currency like this, there, there would be certain eligible assets that would be allowed uh, to do that. You, you know, you couldn't yeah. use uh, fraction reserve uh, commercial bank electronic money to do that because it sort of defeats the purpose.
1: Yes. Uh, In fact, uh, I've written a paper with Claire Noon, um, who is now at the Reserve Bank of Australia in 2018, uh, where we're talking about this. And this is, uh, it has a a big bearing on financial stability and the ability of uh, the private sector to potentially run on bank deposits and into CBDC, where there are various ways of of preventing that and therefore making the financial stability side of this uh, uh, much, much safer than what people might might expect one is by having an interest paying CBdc where you can make it as attractive or unattractive as you want, and the other one is by basically saying if you want to have this form of central bank money, you need to come with the central bank to the central bank with an eligible asset, and that eligible asset would uh, is typically in today 's world a government security right right
0: yeah, that, may, that makes a lot of sense very interesting. I think the convergence of both this uh, digital currency world and ideas of full reserve banking and potential ways to restructure, reconstruct elements of the international monetary system are, are, are with us. Uh, what do you see in the next, uh, in the next few years?
1: Uh, what I see in the next few years, it, when we talked a lot about the Chicago plan, we didn't really delineate it very clearly against central bank digital currency a little bit, but let me, let me say a few things about that because that's, that's critical for going forward is that uh, the Chicago plan is not on the drawing board. That's a very, that would be a pretty radical reform. Central bank digital currencies are now uh, on the drawing board at a number of central banks. And the Chinese uh, are amongst the ones that are furthest ahead, it looks like, uh, but for example, in Europe, uh, Sweden has looked into it very closely, Canada is looking into it very closely, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Central bank digital currency is uh, a world where you have the fractional reserve banking system and central bank digital currency existing side by side. Right. And um, that's a paper we wrote in 2016. And, and you know, the, the, the intellectual history is interesting. When I wrote the Chicago Plan in 2012, uh, this was sort of like a bolt out of the blue and people thought, what the hell are you talking about? And this is, this is w- way too extreme. And and, and then it, it, it's sort of interesting that in just a few years since then, the little cousin of the Chicago plan, which is what central bank digital currency is, right. um, it is, is being debated a lot. Yeah. So you can see that it's a, sometimes the debate seemed glacial to me, but I think in historical terms, it's actually pretty quick.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think many of the uh, underlying uh, motivations for the digital currency movement, if you want to think of it that way, is, you know, how do we build a safer uh, financial system? And, yes. um, and, and I think that's, that's, that animates a lot of things um, as well. But, um, well, Michael, this has been a wonderful and fascinating discussion. I really greatly appreciate you joining us on the program and, and look forward to your continued uh, research and search and, and, and work and hope to stay
1: in touch. Yeah thanks very much again for having me on the show.
0: Thank you Michael. So I, I think you know s- stepping back here obviously there's this fundamental disruption of digital money of, uh, of these new, new forms of uh, medium of exchange um, We have these breakthroughs uh, of digital currency itself. We have non-sovereign digital currency. We have stable coins. We have emerging ideas for how uh, governments uh, or or leading central banks um, could deal with this. There's a lot of questions being raised about what does this mean for central banks? And what does this mean in terms of the potential for new types of digital currency banks? And so joining us now to discuss all of this is Tommaso Mancini-Griffoli, uh, who is the Deputy Division Chief of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the uh, International Monetary Fund. Welcome, Tommaso. Yes.
2: Hi. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Delighted nice. to be here.
0: Yes. Wonderful. So, I, you know, you've... Uh, you're, you're also a prolific uh, uh, thinker and, and, and writer and researcher on a lot of these topics, uh, have, have uh, enjoyed everything that you've, uh, you've done over the years, but you've touched on stable coins and global stable coins. You've, you've written extensively about, you know, approaches central banks might take to this. And then I think this really critical idea uh, that you and others at the fund have put forward for a synthetic or what I like to call a hybrid central bank digital currency model that leads us down this path to the idea of of narrow banks. Um, And so um, I I, I wanna start there. Um, Maybe maybe first just help us understand what is a narrow bank? How does it fit with this idea of of full reserve money? How does it fit with this idea of digital currency?
2: Sure, Uh, thanks Jeremy. Maybe I should introduce also the concept of synthetic central bank digital currency. Uh, right. So that our listeners uh, uh, can follow more easily, that would be and and uh, so a, a synthetic central bank digital currency is essentially a private-public partnership, where the private sector uh, issues a liability uh, that is used by you and I to purchase assets for payments, um, but that liability is fully backed with central bank reserves, and uh, that liability is issued under license a license of the central bank would extend and in exchange for the central bank to obviously supervise uh, and regulate uh, the business and the institution. So uh, this is different from what uh, people originally called central bank digital currency, which would entail the central bank issuing a liability directly to the public. So either we hold an account at the central bank or we hold a little digital token on our wallet issued by the central bank and we trade that. Um, so there's a fundamental difference here uh, because the private sector uh, is an important player. And uh, when we spoke to central banks about central bank digital currency, they would all say that, well, there are advantages there are disadvantages as well, but there are advantages. So it's interesting to consider this, but of course, it's very costly. It's very risky to the central bank and it might deter innovation. Mm-hmm. So, this private-public partnership is intended to conserve the comparative advantages of the private sector to interface with clients and innovate, and yeah. the comparative advantage of the central bank to regulate and provide trust. Now, of course, uh, this is similar to a narrow bank because uh, this is a, a payment, a specialized payment institution uh, that issues liability that are fully backed with central bank reserves. But I, I, I would like to avoid the term uh, narrow bank because it's so charged. This, this is not a narrow banking license that the central bank would issue. This is a, a special synthetic CBDC license right. uh, that the central bank would issue. And that would have all sorts of limitations in order to uh, avoid problems of financial stability. And I guess we'll speak about that later in the program
0: yeah so i i think um i it's fascinating it is is something that we have have very much gravitated to um you know i think um in the absence of these types of uh, charters and supervision um you know private sector you know actors are sort of driving head in the space you're familiar obviously with 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 the work that we do and and others um but you know the it's moving fast right so we we see these kind of global stable coin arrangements um that have you know uh, reserve models that have one hundred percent reserve models that are you right. know, you know, backed by uh, you know, sort of you know, uh, s- sovereign uh, securities typically, um, but it 's not yet uh, you know hey there 's an account with the Federal Reserve or there 's an account with the European Central Bank, and it has a set of supervisory relationships and I, I think yes. but this idea of public private partnership I think is really, really critical and um, you know it, it you know the sort of private sector in, in technology has shown incredible capacity for innovation and reach and distribution and um, and if you can marry that to the you know the safety and soundness and the kind of supervisory rigor of a leading central banks you potentially have something quite quite uh, powerful with that um, you know uh, emerging
2: yeah so that's that's precisely the idea uh, Jeremy is, is that you know we, we shouldn't stop, we shouldn't stop the innovation, we shouldn't rein in the innovation, but we should make sure that it happens within the confines of a regulated environment. Yep. I mean, it's great that we have new uh, innovations in payments, we have stable coins that are backed with relatively safe assets, but you know, there's a bunch of different stable coins that are available. Yep. It's hard for consumers to know which ones are really fully backed, which ones really offer a claim uh, on the mm-hmm. underlying reserves and how liquid and safe are those reserves. And are they liquid and safe in all states of the world? Uh, It might work now, but not during a crisis. So there are all these questions that emerge uh, and that pose fundamental risks to uh, users and to the safety of the financial system. And so the idea is to address those head on, uh, to provide a regulatory environment, uh, uh, an equal playing field for all the innovators, but to allow them to continue to innovate on the technological front, uh, and to allow them to continue to interface with customers since that's what they do well. Yeah. Uh, so that's very much, I mean, you described it very well. That's very much our idea. Now, there, there are differences, of course, uh, as to how you might design this. And there's a debate as to whether the liability would be issued by the central bank or by the private sector. Uh, and so I think that, you know, people used to think about central bank digital currency as something that the central bank would run entirely. Right. That idea is kind of out the door. We've, we've warmed up to the idea of a public-private partnership, yeah. uh, and the question is how to design that partnership. So along the value chain, from interacting with customers to undertaking customer due diligence, uh, screening customers essentially, to building the interface with which customers trade uh, the tokens, uh, to picking the technology. And yeah. that's essentially issuing the token, to conserving data, etc. All these steps yeah. are necessary. The question is, where do you draw the line of what is uh, what the public sector does and what the private sector does? Right. And and the fundamental question is about issuance. I think is does the public sector issue and the yeah. private sector distribute, or do we also allow the private sector to issue? Yeah. And I mean, it might. And this is still up for debate. And you know,